Welcome to the Westminster Pulpit, an extension of the worship ministry at Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format, and may this sermon nurture your life in a meaningful way as we proclaim our Savior. We now join our senior pastor, Dr. Chris Walker. Well, this morning, if you were with us last week, you know we're continuing in a brief topical series on the subject of biblical worship. It's a brief interlude to our working our way through Mark. And if you were here with us last week, you may remember that I planned to address this topic through a series of questions. Who, why, what, how, when, and with whom? Last week, we tackled the first question of who. Who is this God that we gather to worship each week? Isaiah chapter 40 summoned us to behold our God in His majestic greatness, but also in His tender care for His people. Today, we want to move on to the question of why. Why should we worship God? What, what is our reason or, or motivation for gathering each week in worship. Now, after last week when we saw the utter majesty of God, maybe this question seems rather unnecessary. I mean, how could we not worship the God who reveals Himself to us in Scripture? And, and didn't we see last week that all through Scripture, the immediate response of God's people when they beheld His glory was to fall down and worship? So why do we need to talk about the question of, of why? But I want to dig into Scripture a bit further today to understand why the worship of God should have such a thorough claim on our lives as God's people. And we're going to be looking more at a a number of passages in Scripture this morning rather than just one, but I'd like to begin by reading two portions of Isaiah chapter 43. So if you would, follow with me as we read from Isaiah 43, beginning in verse 1. This is God's Word. But now thus says the Lord, He who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name, and you are mine. When you pass through the waters, I will be with you, and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through fire, you shall not be burned, and the flame shall not consume you. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior." I give Egypt as your ransom, Cush and Seba in exchange for you, because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. Fear not, for I am with you. I will bring your offspring from the east, and from the west I will gather you. I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the end of the earth, everyone who is called by my name, whom I created for my glory, whom I formed and made. I want to skip over a few verses and and pick up again in verse 14. Let's pick up in 14 and we'll read down through verse 21. Thus says the Lord, your Redeemer, the Holy One of Israel, For your sake I send to Babylon and bring them all down as fugitives, even the Chaldeans and the the ships in which they rejoice. I am the Lord, your Holy One, the Creator of Israel, your King. Thus says the Lord, who makes a way in the sea, 
a path in the mighty waters, who brings forth chariot and horse, army and warrior. They lie down and cannot rise. They are extinguished, quenched like a wick. Remember not the former things, nor consider the things of old. Behold, I am doing a new thing. Now it springs forth. Do you not perceive it? I will make a way in the wilderness and rivers in the desert. The wild beasts will honor me, the jackals and the ostriches. For I give water in the wilderness, rivers in the desert, to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, which is our source of truth, of hope, of life. Would you draw us more by Christ to behold your glory this morning, we pray in his name. Amen. You know, sometimes when we make a decision in life, we do so for very simple, clear, straightforward reasons. We're out of food, so we go grocery shopping. We like to play basketball, so we jump at a, plant, a chance to play. But many times our motivations are much more complex than that, aren't they? There's, there's layers of motivations. We have subconscious reasons for doing things that maybe we haven't realized or acknowledged yet. Other times we have multiple motivations, and sometimes we don't really want to reveal some of those motivations. I was thinking about a time in in college when a a hallmate of mine invited me to go with him to a dirt track race. Well, dirt track races are a lot of fun, and hanging out with friends is a lot of fun, so those were two good reasons for me to say yes. But I didn't reveal my main motivation— which was that I heard a girl was going named Kate, who I wanted to spend time with. We don't reveal all those motivations sometimes. Other times we have immediate motivations and then ultimate motivations. For instance, three people might share the same immediate motivation to lose weight, but they might have completely different ultimate motivations. One, because of a medical diagnosis. Another, because they want to get back in shape. And a third, because they're a wrestler and they need to meet their weight class for their match. But if we're going to understand any action properly, we need to cut through the many good reasons or motivations that may exist to understand the heart of the matter, the chief motivation that is more important than all the others. And that is especially the case when we come to our worship of God. See, there are many good reasons to worship God. Pastor Ligon Duncan lists a number of them because God tells us to in his word. Because we should want to give God gratitude and thanks for his salvation. We should want to hear from God's word and learn more about him. Worship is a a chance to receive blessing from the Lord. These are all good reasons for why we would come together and worship. But if we're going to understand worship properly, and if we're going to approach worship correctly then we have to know that among all these good reasons to worship God, there is one primary motivation, one chief reason for our worship. Duncan puts it this way. He says, There is no higher answer to the question of why do we worship God than because the glory of God is more important than anything else in all creation. The glory of God is more important than anything else in all of creation. In fact, when we look in Scripture, we find that God's highest goal, both in creating us and in saving us, is the glory of His name. Or to put it another way, worship, giving God glory, 
he deserves is our highest good and our primary purpose and calling as human beings. And that's our, that's our main point this morning. And we want to look first at this claim that God created us for his glory, and then we'll look secondly at the claim that God saved us for his glory. So let's start with this claim that worship, the greater glory of God's name, is the reason that God created us. And perhaps the most notable theologian in our country's 400-year history was a man by the name of Jonathan Edwards. Many of you would know the name of Jonathan Edwards. He pastored in Massachusetts in the middle of the 1700s. He was a significant voice in the First Great Awakening and an early president of Princeton University. Edwards wrote a number of significant theological works. He also wrote a short treatise by the title, The End for Which God Created the World, in which he tackled this question, what was God's chief goal in creation? And in the treatise, Edwards lays out the argument for for his claim that God's primary goal in creation was his greater glory. Now, we should maybe pause just to clarify that God in himself, when we talk about his glory, we're sometimes talking about the sum of his attributes, the glory of who he is. And God is not increased in the glory of who he is by creation. But we also talk about giving glory to God as as the calling of all beings to magnify the praise and the honor of his name. And, And so that's what we mean when we say that God's goal in creation was not to give him something he wasn't, but rather the greater magnifying of his praise. And in this treatise, Edwards argues first this way. He says, the glorious attributes of God will be more magnified not just by being true in themselves, but when they are exercised or demonstrated or put on display. In other words, it's one thing for God to be infinite in power and beauty, but if those attributes are never used and never seen, then he will not receive the honor that he deserves. So that was the first point in Edwards' argument. But then second, Edwards argued, not only will the attributes of God be more magnified when they're on display, but they will be more magnified when there are other creatures to behold and to see the sum of his attributes. I was thinking about this, and some of you would know the poet Emily Dickinson, a well-known poet in American literary history. What you may not know is that Dickinson spent almost her entire life in complete isolation. In fact, in much of her later adult life, she never left her bedroom. And it was after her death that her family went into her bedroom and found stacks of poetry that no one had ever known of or seen before. And so Dickinson had exercised her gifts in poetry, but no one had been there to behold them. And so she never received honor in her lifetime. And in a similar way, God's glory will only be properly magnified if there are other creatures to see his excellency and give him the praise that his name deserves. But then third, Edwards adds another layer. He says, God's glory will be greater or more magnified if those beings who see his glory not only behold it, but love it and value it, delight in it and honor him for it. And we can see the same thing in an artist. An artist may, may paint a beautiful painting, but if no one appreciates it, if no one values it, then that artist is not going to receive notoriety or honor. 
And so Edwards concludes God's chief goal in creating the world was to communicate the infinite fullness of his perfection that he might be known and delighted in by his creatures so that his glory would be magnified as he deserves. I think we could put it in another way. If we want to reward it, we could put it this way. Your purpose in life and my purpose in life is to know, delight in, and magnify the name and the character of God for his glory. That is why we exist. And that was Edwards' argument. But of course, like any good theologian, Edwards doesn't just make the argument. Then he goes on and turns to Scripture and says, is this what we find God telling us in his word? And the answer is a resounding yes. God tells us in general, for instance, that all things exist for his sake and for his glory. You might think of Paul's words in Romans chapter 11, verse 36, where he writes, For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be glory forever. Or you might think of the Psalms, because in the Psalms, the authors repeatedly summon all creation to fulfill this purpose of giving God the praise that his name deserves. You might think of Psalm 148. In Psalm 148, we hear this, Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him all his angels. Praise him all his hosts, kings of the earth and all people, princes and rulers of the earth, young men and maidens together, old men and children. You hear the comprehensive, every single being summons to do what? Let them praise the name of the Lord, for his name alone is exalted. His majesty is above earth and heaven. So Scripture summons every creature to fulfill this purpose of giving him the praise he deserves. But if there's any lingering doubt, God said it explicitly in Isaiah 43 that we read this morning. This beautiful passage of the Lord's declaration that he is the Lord, the Holy One who created Israel and who is with them and cares for them. But this builds up to to verses 6 and 7 where we read, I will say to the north, give up, and to the south, Do not withhold. Bring my sons from afar and my daughters from the ends of the earth. Everyone who is called by my name. And what do we read there in verse 7? Whom I created for my glory. Whom I formed and made. So again and again we read that we were created to magnify the glory of God. That was God's great goal in all creation. Our purpose as his created beings. But if we were to turn to chapter 1 of Romans, we would find that mankind has not fulfilled the purpose for which God created him. Beginning in verse 20 of Romans chapter 1, we read that God's invisible attributes are clearly seen in creation, that he has clearly shown his eternal power in divine nature ever since the creation of the world. So God was successful. He put his attributes on display He was worthy of praise and honor and glory. But, Paul says, mankind did not honor him as God as they were created to do. Instead, they exchanged the glory of immortal God for images of mortal man, animals, and creeping things. That's a striking indictment, isn't it? That we exchange the glory of immortal, almighty God to focus on ourselves and worship creeping things. 
But what Paul's showing us here is that our sin is a worship problem. The whole heart of, of mankind's rebellion and sin is a problem of worship. And, and Paul says that it's, it's because we exchange the glory of God for creatures that we go on to sin in all of the ways that he recounts in sexual immorality and deceit uh, and anger and bitterness. We turned from God, focused on ourselves and the things around us rather than his glory. And that is the heart of rebellion and the source of all of the sin in our lives. But of course, Romans chapter 1 is not the end of the story. Because having bailed on our purpose and exchanged the glory of God for a lie, God acted again, this time in sending his own son to redeem and save his people. And the question is, why would God do that? Why would God sacrifice his own son to redeem sinful people who had turned from their created purpose? Well, as it turns out, for the very same reason, for his own glory. And that's our second point this morning. We want to see how Scripture declares that the reason God saved us was also for his own glory, that we might worship him and praise his name. The second portion that we read from Isaiah chapter 43 says this directly. In verses 14 to 21, the Lord declares his salvation of Israel. He talks about how he made a way through the sea, bringing them out of Egypt, how he crushed Pharaoh's army, extinguishing them like a wick. But then he says, I'm going to do a new thing. He's going to save his people yet again. The wilderness is going to turn into rivers. Beasts are going to glorify him. But then in verse 21, what does he say? He's going to give drink to my chosen people, the people whom I formed for myself, that they might declare my praise. So why did God call a particular people from the nations? That they might be his and that they might worship him and declare his praise. In fact, if we were to look back at God's salvation of his people from Exodus, we'd find the very, very same thing. When God brought Israel out of Egypt, what was his first command to them in Exodus chapter 20? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. I saved you. You shall have no other gods before me. Worship of the one true God is the first command upon his salvation. As the Old Testament looks forward to a coming salvation in Jesus, it, it, it says the same thing. You might think of Ezekiel chapter 36, where God promises that he's going to gather Israel from the nations and sprinkle them with clean water and give them a new heart and put his spirit in them. Why is he going to do this? He says he's going to do it so that they might walk in his ways, that they would be his people, and that he would be their God. And in this way... God says, you will know that I am the Lord and the nations will know that I am the Lord. And I'm going to do this, Ezekiel 36 says, not for your sake, Israel, but for the sake of my holy name. See, God is planning a salvation which will restore his people to himself that they and all the nations might know that he is God and he is doing this for the greater honor and glory of his name. When we come to the New Testament, guess what? We find the same thing. 
We find God again declaring that the reason he sent Christ was to redeem a people who would worship him for the praise of his name. Maybe you remember, remember that scene where Jesus is talking with the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman, in John chapter 4. And the woman asked him a question about worship. Where should we worship? And as Jesus is answering her, he says this, The hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. What's the Father seeking? He's seeking worshipers. Or how about we look at Ephesians chapter 1 verse 5. What reason does Paul give for why God would send Christ in order to adopt his people as his children? He says this, In love God predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace. The praise of his grace was the reason for his action. Or how about in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 9, the apostle Peter writes, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? That you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So do you hear what Scripture is saying again and again, Old Testament and New? That we have a twice-given purpose. The reason we were created by God and the reason we were saved by God through Jesus Christ was to magnify the glory of God as we delight in the infinite excellencies of His character to the praise of His name. That's our purpose. That's the answer to the question, why? And of course, this goal of to the praise of, of the glory of God impacts everything we do. It's comprehensive. So 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 31 says that we should eat and drink in a way that glorifies God. 2 Corinthians 9, 12 says that when we give financial help to those in need, it results to the praise and thanks of His name. 1 Peter 4, 11 says that we should use any gift God has given, whether speaking or serving others, that God might be glorified. And we could keep going, but Scripture makes it clear that comprehensively we're to do everything in life for the glory of His name. But this purpose also clarifies why we're here on Sunday morning. What are we here to do? Our first and great goal when we come together is to praise God for His glory. And when we come together to worship God, when we are here lifting up his name, we are fulfilling our purpose and God's desire for us as his people. It's what we were created to do, and it's what we were saved to do. It is our chief reason and motivation for worship. So that's the great chief answer to the question why. Why do we worship God? It's what we were created to do and saved to do. But once again, let me take our final minutes together to consider three applications for our worship from this truth. So first, knowing our central purpose in life will renew our joy in our time of worship. I want to think of it this way. You know how knowing the purpose of a tool is the key to using that tool well? I'm sure I can't be the only one here who's had a small repair job to do upstairs, and so I grab my hammer and I grab my Phillips head screwdriver, and I go upstairs to do the project, only to discover 
that there's flathead screws instead of Phillips head screws. But of course, I don't want to go all the way back downstairs to the garage, so I, I turn that Phillips head screwdriver sideways and I try to manipulate it into the crack, or I grab the hammer and use the tines backwards and try to, try to you know, wrench it out. And it's only when at least two fingers are bleeding and I've spent three times as long as it would have taken me to go back down to the garage that I finally give in and, and I march back down the stairs and I'm usually muttering threats against anyone who would use flathead screws in the first place to get the tool... That was meant to turn flathead screws. Because when you know the purpose of a tool, then it can be used as it was intended and used effectively. But in perhaps a, a similar way, we as human beings will find our greatest joy and satisfaction when we are doing what God created us to do. Many of you have probably heard the famous quote of that missionary and Olympic runner, Eric Little. How he said, when I run, I feel God's pleasure. God had gifted him to run well. And when he used that gift God had given him, he felt the joy of the Lord. Now, I don't feel any of that joy in running. So clearly, Eric Little and I were gifted differently. But all of us, every single one of us, was created to give glory to God. We were created for worship. And so giving God glory is what we were all made to do. It is our purpose. And, and realizing that in worship, we are fulfilling what God created us to do and called us to do. That we're participating in the highest good in all creation should give us great joy. Now, I should immediately make a qualification. Knowing that worship is our purpose will not turn the church service into something that's more entertaining. Nor does it mean that we will automatically walk through the doors of the sanctuary and feel this buoyant happiness. And that's true for several reasons. First of all, we are all very distracted. It's so easy for us to be distracted from our focus on the Lord by the squirmy child next to us or wishing that the pastor would preach shorter, the organ would play faster, or the temperature would be cooler, or our football team was better, or our work was less stressful. And you, know, you know all the thoughts that distract us from our focus on, on the Lord. But of course, it's not just a matter of our distraction of thinking of other things. Because unlike a tool... We as humans can forget our purpose entirely. And we can become focused on ourselves and things that we want. And so lose out on the joy and the satisfaction of what we were created to do because we've ignored it and set it aside and exchanged it, as Romans chapter 1 said. But here's the point that I'm trying to make. When you and I come in together into our time of worship, when we remember and take the opportunity each Sunday to genuinely gaze on the excellencies of the character of God and how He is displayed in creation and in salvation, and when we respond by marveling at His majesty and delighting in His, His love and the grace of Jesus Christ and declaring His praise, when we do that, we will know the satisfaction and the joy of fulfilling our purpose, of doing what God created us to do and saved us to do as we magnify his name. So that's our first application this morning. The second is this. The fact that the glory of God is our chief reason for being here shapes how we go about worship. 
Because your main goal in something will determine how you go about doing it. You, you know that from something as simple as making dinner. If your main goal in making dinner is to make a dinner that can be eaten quickly and cleaned up quickly so you can get to the soccer game, that's going to be a very different meal than if your main goal is to honor and host special guests in your home. So your goal will shape how you go about doing something, and the same is true of our worship. If our main goal on Sunday morning is evangelism, our time together would look different. If our main goal was fellowship with one another, our time would look different. If our main goal was to to be restored with inner peace starting our week, our service would look different. Now, I want to clarify, some of these are good things. We hope that the gospel of Jesus Christ is declared this morning and that some here might know it for the first time and come to know Jesus Christ. We are here to fellowship with one another. We hope that happens. But our chief goal, the reason for all of it, is the glory of God. And that shapes how we worship it. It shapes our service in the big picture. The way I go about preparing my sermon and preaching scripture is shaped by that. The songs that we sing are shaped by this goal of the glory of God. It, it also shapes some of the specific details of how we go back about our service Maybe, maybe some of you are new to Westminster and, and you wonder, why does this church not clap for its choirs, not even for the kids? I mean, do we not like children around here? And, and the reason, though, that that's been our, our pattern is that music and, and, and our choirs, as they sing, applause to a musical piece easily mirrors a concert and a performance and we want to guard our own hearts that the attention and the praise is not given to those who who sing or perform rather the focus is on the glory of God through the content and the music that's that's displayed that he might receive the praise the key point that I'm, I'm making though is that in big picture and in little details our central goal being on giving God glory shapes how we worship together. So that's the second application. And then the third is this. Worship and our primary goal of giving God glory also shapes our passion for all of the ministries that we do and the missions that we support. Someone might ask the question, if our main goal is the glory of God, is to worship God, then why do we as a church spend so much time and money and energy putting on children's programs and ESL classes and sending missionaries? Why do we do all those things if our main goal is the worship of God? And the answer is because we long to see more people worshiping God. John Piper articulates this best in his book, Let the Nations Be Glad. Piper writes, missions is not the ultimate goal of the church. Worship is. Missions exists because worship does not. Worship, therefore, is the fuel and the goal of missions. It's the goal of missions because in missions we simply aim to bring the nations into the white, hot enjoyment of the glory of God. But worship is also the fuel of missions because no one of us can commend something that we do not cherish ourselves. So missions begins and ends in worship. And so as we think about this as a church, all we do in ministry and all we do in the support of missions starts by treasuring the glory of God and delighting to sing his praises. And that is also what then motivates us to tell others about the glory of God and to invite them to join us in singing 
his praise. And so this is, this is what I want to impress on our, our hearts this morning with this application. If we as a congregation and if each of us individually is going to be faithful and biblical in all of the ministries that we are involved in, in our supportive missions, our efforts must start with, flow from, and aim for the greater worship of God to the glory of his name. And so this is why, this is why we are here. This is why we worship, for the glory of God. It's what we were created for, and it's what we were saved for. It is, as the catechism puts it, the chief end of man to glorify God and enjoy him forever. But as we end, let me just leave you with one final thought. This is our calling. It is our purpose. But let's not forget the indictment of Romans chapter 1. That every single one of us was born neglecting the glory of God. Having turned from him and exchanged him for our own desires and the worship of this world instead. Which means that every one of us was born under the wrath of God for refusing to do what we were created and called to do. And that just brings us right back to the central importance of Jesus Christ. This is only because of Christ that this indictment has changed for any of us. It is only because he died in our place and took that wrath for us, because he rose again that we might have new life, only because he sent his spirit to give us new hearts, to change our hearts that we might once again desire to give honor and praise and glory to God. In other words, it is Christ who restores our ability to worship. And it's Christ who restores our delight in and our enjoyment in proclaiming the excellencies of God. It is Christ who restores our ability to do what we were created to do. And so may we end this morning by giving all glory and praise and honor to God through Jesus Christ, our Savior, forever and ever. Let's pray. Our Father, our goal this morning was to be reminded of why we are here. And in doing so, we look to your word and what we find in your word from beginning to end, Old Testament and New, again and again, that your purpose in creation and redemption was the greater glory of your name. Father, would you instill this in our hearts? Would it be our central desire and passion? Would it be our goal in everything we do? But would it restore our joy and our energy and our time together as we sing your praise? And we pray that you would do this for the greater glory of your name. And we pray it in Christ's name. Amen. The Westminster Pulpit is courtesy of Westminster Presbyterian Church in Lancaster, Pennsylvania. You are welcome to worship with us on Sunday mornings at 8 or 11 a.m. To learn more or have questions about the gift of salvation through Christ Jesus our Savior, contact us at westpca.com. Thank you, and may Christ be glorified through this ministry, the Westminster Pulpit.